Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to You Me Empathy. My name's Known Wells, and I created this podcast called You Me Empathy, and it's about empathy. It's about vulnerability. It's about creating safe spaces for people to be who they are, to 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 be who they are, and to explore who they are, to look inward and emotional wayfind, which is to. To be curious about our emotions, to be curious about our feelings, and to to think about them, and to wonder about them, and to look back at our childhood, and to kind of explore it all, because I feel like that's what we need to do to be better humans, to be better feely humans, to better connect with each other, to create better relationships, to grow, to learn, and all that good stuff that comes with life on this pale, awe-inspiring pew? pew? pale blue dot. Uh, Thank you for being here. I love you guys. So today's episode is episode 75. Uh, I'm chatting with my friend and author Amanda Stern. We explore uh, Amanda's experience growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder, anxiety in children. We talk about death a lot, which is Amanda's doing. Um, And we also talk about Amanda's uh, book, Little Panic, which everyone should read. I read it. It's lovely. It's beautiful. It's a memoir that Amanda wrote about her growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder and anxiety. Uh, and it's it's really quite hilarious and heartbreaking. Um, and you should read it. And guess what? The paperback is out tomorrow. The paperback of Little Panic is out tomorrow. And you should go pre you should go not pre-order it. You should go pick it up. Actually, if it's out tomorrow, you can pre-order it today, which is exciting. So pick it up at your local bookshop. Um, I have a link. I have links to uh, where you can order it uh, on the show notes for this episode. So go support authors doing work and writing about anxiety, writing about mental health, doing the work of destigmatizing this normalizing conversations around mental health. It's important. And Amanda is a delightful, feely human like us. She is one of the good ones and hilarious. And I was uh, grateful to meet her in person uh, when we did this. This is actually my first on the, on the, rec- on the road recording, which was kind of fun. Um, so yeah, uh, go support Amanda. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode, uh, episode 75 uh, please, uh, if you're not subscribed uh, to Yumi Empathy, uh, please do that via iTunes, Google, and leave reviews, um, leave ratings. Five stars is the best one. It's my favorite. So go do that. That would be lovely. And um, I guess I should read uh, a new review, which I can do in a moment here while I'm navigating to... <laughs> to iTunes to read uh, a new review, I will just say that I appreciate you guys. Like, it's 
sometimes it's overwhelming doing this this podcast, and I I, I get all up all up in my head, and I get overwhelmed, and I and I you know feel you know like I I shouldn't be here, and I. But every week, I swear, you guys come through and you send me a note via Instagram or you send me an email or via Facebook or whatever, and you just say, like, look, this touched me in this way, or I, you know, found this very helpful, or I'm loving what you're doing now, and it's just, I'm not asking for more of that. I mean, more of that, you know, everyone needs that. Like, I love doing that for others, but I'm just saying, uh, you guys keep being you. You're doing amazing, and I I appreciate your messages every week. Uh, it keeps me going. It's the best. Um, so thank you. Okay, so here I'm going to read a couple of new iTunes reviews. Uh, this one is from Court B six ten. Court, I'm assuming that's a woman, but who knows? That's that's probably not a fair assumption. Uh, they wrote, uh, in it together, five stars, quote, I'm so happy Yumi Empathy is here for all of us to share in our mental health journeys and to remember we are not alone, end quote. Thanks, Court B610. That is one of the aims of this podcast is to feel less alone because we're not alone. Uh, one more review I'll read. This is from Lanadel, L-A, Lanedel or L-A-N-E-D-E-L. Thank you is the subject line. Five stars. Quote, known. Thank you. You and your courageous work came to me at exactly the right time and has made me feel less isolated on my journey. End quote. Well, thank you, Lanadel or Lanedel. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Thank you. I mean, I, I, it warms my heart to know that it's, it's helped you and your mental health journey. And it's also a reminder for me that like, we're all connected, everyone. We're in this thing together. I say that every week, but it's true. We're in it together. Like that's the beautiful part about living on this planet is that we're, we're in this together. Okay. And it, it's easy to feel isolated. We do that to ourselves, but there's there's communities like this one. There's communities out there, beautiful communities that are supportive and 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 just loving and kind and accepting and willing to meet you where you're at. So keep the hope alive. I love you. Thank thanks for listening to Yumi Empathy. Enjoy this episode, episode 75. Make sure to make sure to to, to pre-order Little Panic. Paper book is out tomorrow. So Go support my friend and lovely human, Amanda Stern, and enjoy this episode, episode 75, Amanda Stern's Little Panic. Yumi Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. 
The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I've taken my first on-the-road Yumi Empathy recording to LA to share space with native New Yorker, mental health advocate, human companion to a doggo named Busy, and author of the simultaneously delightful and heartbreaking memoir, Little Panic, Amanda Stern. Hello. Hello. How's it going? It's going really well. I'm here in this beautiful home, first on the road recording. I feel anxious. I feel excited. I am excited to meet you in person for the first time. Hello. Hello. I right back at you. All of the same things. Good. Well, uh, so I, as I mentioned in the uh, introduction, listeners, Amanda has written this beautiful book that I am not quite done yet with. Okay. Um, I've no got judgment. 50 pages or so, although I can't. I'm listening to the audiobook. Okay. I bought the audiobook and the hardcover. Yeah. You don't I know. mess. I know. I don't mess around. Um, but it's beautiful and it's lovely. And if you've ever experienced any sort of anxiety in your life, it's a book you should absolutely pick up and read because uh, it's it's it'll hit you right in the right in the core. Um, before we get into Amanda's story and the book, we always start off with an emotional check in. How how's the day going? How how's the week been? The week has been good. I've. Um, I flew here, which is one of my least favorite activities. Um, I uh, there was intense turbulence uh, over the Rockies, and they did not tell me that was going to happen. The pilot did not communicate with me. They should do that. I agree with you. So they didn't, and it didn't stop. And I burst into tears. Mm. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, I'm freaking out. And he looked at me and said, so. Whoa. Yeah. What a response that is. I know. So I killed him. Um, (laughs) As one should. Yeah. So I sat next to a dead guy for the rest of the flight. Um, So that was a little um, off-putting in the middle of a anxiety moment. Um, But um, I made it through. I, I didn't die. How did you make it through? So, I I had it was a battle. It was a battle between uh, what I what I know and what I'm what I'm used to doing. What I'm used to doing is following the anxiety, sure, um, like the reflexive response. Yeah. But I've been going around to a lot of schools and talking to kids about anxiety and what to do in situations like that, and I just thought, okay. What do I tell the kids? Hmm. What do I tell the kids? So I thought of what I tell the kids, and um, and I thought, okay, turbulence is just going over potholes in the sky. And, <laughs> I love that. Um, and then I did deep breathing, mm-hmm. and I thought, if you die, you die. Like there's there's really nothing I can do. Yeah. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to just enjoy it while it's <laughs> happening, but I'm also not going to be terrified that I'm about to die when I don't know if that's going to happen. And if it does, it'll, 
Yeah. There's nothing I can do. There really isn't anything. No. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, breathing definitely helps me, yeah. for sure. Breathing is where um, it's at. But obviously, the response from that gentleman sitting next to you, not the right response. No. No empathy there. None. <laughs> not, and then I looked over because he was sitting with his partner and he was holding her hand. So she was clearly. Oh, so upset. he was, his empathy cup was already filled. I mean, yeah. elsewhere. Right, or yeah. he just, it was not a cup. It was or, like a thimble. <laughs> it was a thimble, yeah. yeah. It was like yeah. a gravy boat. But you're giving him or a, a plate. Lot of Maybe it was a plate that just only filled up like a okay. centimeter. And then, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, <laughs> Maybe I, a thimble's I think right. Would, yeah, I think it was, or like a Coke nail. A Coke nail. There you <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah. That works. Yeah, like an 80s Coke nail of empathy. I, li- I like that, yeah. Um, and then the rest of the week has been good. I've been, I'm, I'm getting sick, so... I'm fighting something, which is never fun because I also have that thing where I'm like, oh, I'm getting sick. What if I never get better? Do you get sick a lot? I do. So I was listening to another podcast you were on and you were sick for that. Yeah. Was that other people? I think so. Yeah. I coughed like 75 times in that interview. (laughs) I do. I get sick when I'm anxious. And so I was... um, I, I did an interview last night at the library with Otessa Moshveg, mm-hmm. and um, I was really excited about it, but I was also incredibly anxious about it. Yeah. And w- w- when a big anxiety like that is on the horizon, I, my thought process goes like this. I, I hope I don't get sick. I hope I have the energy. If, if I get sick, I won't have the energy. Mm-hmm. And then I think about getting sick so much, I get sick. Sure. Um, so I sort of need to figure that out, but I, I do get sick when I'm really, really overwhelmed. And anytime I meet like a guy and I feel, I mean, this, this happens so rarely at this point, but I feel like, Ooh, you are someone to get excited about. Yeah. Um, and romantically, romantically, he feels the same about me when we start dating, I get sick. Mm. Um, Mm. yeah. There's just like so much going on, the buildup. Yeah. I relate to that. Like coming here today, like this was a big day for me. I met with uh, someone I podcasted before and uh-huh. been been internet friends with, uh, Katie Hilliard, um, for lunch earlier. Mm-hmm. But I had never met her in person. Okay. Never met you in person. Right. Uh, there's the potentiality of some sort of quote unquote small dinner party tonight that I'm terrified of. So like... What I do, what helps me is uh, a little bit of visualization. Okay. Like, do you do that? Do you ever do that? Like, think about Maybe. how it's going to go. Oh, yeah. Does that help with anxiety? It does, but then my, it does, but then my brain will be like, all right, let's do it again. This time you fall, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but this yeah. This time it goes terribly. Yeah. But I, um, you know, well, how do you tell me, talk to me about how you do, how you use visualization? Like, can you give an example for today? Yeah. So I, I, well, for the, the initial thoughts were like, it's going to go terribly. Um, I'm going to make an ass of myself. And, and, and one of the sort of components of it is the feeling that I have that no one wants to listen to me. That, I, right. that I'm not valued, that I don't deserve love, all these things. Mm-hmm. That's a common thing that I struggle with. And so, it's it's based in that feeling of, not, you know, just undeserving. And then that extends to, why should they 
go out to lunch with me. And then in that, and then that sort of like uh, dovetails into this, yeah, the anxiety brain of like, yeah, it's not going to go well. It's, it's, but like the way I use it is try to like just project positivity. I try to say, hey, you are valued. It's going to go great. People will listen to you. Um, if you go to this party thing, you know, no one's going to talk about sports. Wait, uh, why would that happen? <laughs> I'm just saying. Don't say that. No, well, are no. Are they going to? That's the thing. I'm projecting positivity, so I hope they don't. Yeah, me, uh, they won't. <laughs> see, they won't. Yeah, so that that's so it's it's really like it's almost like a yeah, it's positive thinking. That's really all it is. Yeah, that's how I use it. It doesn't always work, uh, but it works sometimes. But it's interesting because to me, you do something that is inherently fascinating, hmm. um, and you are interested in facets of existence. Absolutely. That are, I mean, there's nothing more important or valuable. So right there, you're sort of like the whole package. So, you know what I mean? I, I And I get that you can't yeah. hold that. Yeah. But on my end, yeah. like thinking about meeting you, mm -hmm. for me, I'm like, this is going to be so great. First oh. of all, he's handsome. <laughs> So that's always fun. Okay, Second this all, took a turn. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna blush. Go ahead. You can blush. Um, and um, second of all, you you do something that is that is really interesting to me, and you care about things that I care about. Well, thank you. And, that's very thoughtful. Well, it's just true. I need that, and I, I was the whole ploy of this podcast is for me to lead you up to give me praise. No, I, that I know. I got the email. You sent it. You sent it. <laughs> You're uh, not supposed to tell the listeners oh about God. that. I'm so sorry. I blogged about the email. <laughs> um, Just kidding. I feel like I have something in my teeth. Uh, yeah. So, a couple of anxious people Fun. Uh, trading our anxieties back and forth. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to this mm -hmm. experience. Um but yeah, like I, so <laughs> thinking about the conversations about sports or whatever, the, the reason why I do this is because, because of what you're saying. Like, I don't want to have conversations that are not this. Right. You know, like ever on air or not. Right. You know, um, and I, I find that uh, many don't want to have this type of conversation. Yes. Far more than do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's prevalent. I mean, I think that that I, that I have that problem too when I have when I conduct interviews. My central interest in the world in living is talking about the roots of um, suffering, hmm. and I want to know about where things originated from. I want to know why people are the way they are, like really why. Yeah, and um, and I want to talk about that. Most people don't know why, don't want to know why, and don't want to think about it. Um, why do you think that is? I think that they're afraid of their own capacity to feel. Mm. I think that once you, I think that people somehow irrationally think that scary feelings or big feelings um, Will are so uncontrolled that 
once they feel them, they'll never stop feeling them. Yeah. I think that's one reason. Sure. Um, another reason is that being the way that you are is so comfortable. So if you have um, an awareness that the way that you are is sort of dysfunctional and it is interfering with aspects of your life that, you know, are making your life more difficult and you have to change, then yeah. that, what if you fail? What if you don't know how? What if you're so different? People don't want to be friends with you anymore. What if you are so different? You don't, you open, you, uh, you awaken to the fact that you don't like the people you're surrounded by. Mm, yeah. There's just so many. So much. Yeah. It's so identity sort of shaking. Yeah. And uh, much of life is about finding what is part of our identity, what's, what's going to fit in. And, and um, we do that in ways that are, um, aren't real. We do that in a lot of ways that are just like based in, um, that are false, that aren't really coming from like the core parts of ourselves. And we build that up. And then, like you're saying, like we experience things that give us anxiety or whatever that's shaking that foundation because right. the foundation isn't strong at all, right. really. Right. Yeah. The thing, the one really important thing that I've learned is that if you face something head on, um, you become, the more aware you become of your, um, uh, I don't know what to call it. The, the more aware you become of yourself yeah. and your difficulties, um, the stronger you become. Absolutely. And I think that awareness is the thing that gets you through anything. It gets, and it, it allows us to connect with others. It allows yeah. us to grow with others. Right. And, and I feel have the most meaningful experiences of living. Right. Yeah. And teach others. Oh, absolutely. You know, what you've learned from going through your own painful experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, happy in a way i'm grateful that i'm not grateful that i've suffered so much but i'm grateful that i i learned how and i'm still obviously continuing to learn how to face my suffering and grow like a callus yeah an emotional callus and because it makes me feel like i'm it makes the world feel more controllable to me more um like i know more of the world absolutely you know it's like visiting i you know visiting a new place and it feels very overwhelming it's so vast where do you start what do you do Mm -hmm. Uh, um but the more you go there the more you get to know it and the more you feel sort of at home yeah like you have another place to go you have another home in the world and then your guard gets lowered yeah and then you're allowed to experience it on other levels. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's beautifully said. I One of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I'm wondering if you can relate to this or have thought about it, is the idea of our identity in our sort of suffering. And by that I mean, like I, yes, I don't like the fact that I've suffered and, you know, I've had certain aspects of my childhood being uh, very traumatic and have had traumatic experiences. But I'm, I've also like, I've learned to in this process of like looking inward and, and through 
therapy and all that stuff, I've learned to like cherish that stuff too as part of like, hey, I have depression. I have like, these are parts of me. They're not all of me, but they're like parts I cherish. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I do. But then there's, uh, there's in other ways, the, the, the more I learn about myself and the older I get, the less I cherish it. And the more I um, sort of just announce it or claim it or accept it. Yeah. Say like, yep, this is what I have. This is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But there are times, there are moments when I talk about this a lot, actually, in therapy that, um, that there's, there, there's a danger of often feeling more comfortable being, quote unquote, the defective one mm. in your family. Sure. Or the black sheep. Yeah. Or, you know, the identity that you grew up with. Sometimes it's hard. It's not just hard to get rid of it. It, it Sometimes we don't want to. Well, it's almost like you, you um, because it can be limiting yourself. Right. You have to first um, see it and also break free of it. Right. And then look back at it. Right. But the breaking free of it can be really difficult because it's sometimes so, fam- it's so familiar to oh, yeah. that person. Oh, 100%. You know, it's like I grew up feeling disabled in all yeah. these ways. And as I get older and older, and I'm getting extremely old. You're very old. I know. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm actually a cadaver. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. that I'm. I don't know how a to- cadaver has anxiety, but. I don't You've either. been able to achieve this. Yeah. Well, I'm a You're special medical cadaver. marvel. <laughs> I, am. I am. I'm a, a special cadaver. It's the name of my band now. <laughs> the band that I will form after this podcast ends. Um, that, you you know, it, it, there's something just so familiar in having that identity. It's how you've always felt. It's how you've always been known. And, yeah. um, and so you sort of assume that that's your identity everywhere right and that's when you get into trouble yeah you know when you when you start assuming that the way that you've been treated you know in your family of origin or up until now is um gonna apply to the people outside no yeah we do a lot of assuming and i think it makes sense that we do it's Mm -hmm. it's terrifying it's overwhelming um but the reality is there really are no assumptions Right. I mean, we really can't make these assumptions about how things will be, how we will change because we're always changing. Yeah. Um, And I think we have to be open to that. I think um, I come across a lot of people who aren't open hearted in that way, but it's terrifying. It's surely the most terrifying part of living. Yeah. But it is the most fruitful, bountiful in the end. True that. (laughs) So you, uh, you've written this beautiful book called Little Panic, which really documents a childhood where you're experiencing this panic, this sheer panic and anxiety, this undiagnosed panic disorder. Um, how, so I'm wondering is like, first, help me understand what panic means for you as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um Without giving too much away in the book, but... Um, I won't tell anyone that I die in the end. <laughs> well, you are a cadaver. I am. 
So you may. And you haven't finished the last 50 pages. true. So it's a spoiler. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's true. But I just wonder, like, because I, like, re- uh, on a recent show, I had someone describe, like, what a panic attack feels like. Mm-hmm. And it, it triggered in me this, like, feeling of, like, oh, I think I used to have, like, little moments of panic attack when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, like, what physically it felt yeah. like as a kid. Yeah. Um, so as a kid, it feels like um, it feels like you're encased in in a th- very thick, vibrating dread. Oh, and wow. yeah. that it's 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 like a clamp, and it sort of clamps you in place, and it's also you can feel it on the inside of you as sort of um, it's like um, it's a not mist because it's heavier, but it's like heavy mist on the dread Mm. as heavy mist on the inside of you, like, you know, inflating you. Yeah. Um, And you've, you feel unable to move um, because if you move, you the 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 fear the dread is that i mean there are many aspects of the dread but one is that if you move you're going to like jostle something and set off a cascade of events that will kill you um and it just it feels like you're somehow moving towards death and there's also a sense of there was a sense that i was I was always pushing back against the feeling I was being dragged toward the end. Something bad. Yeah, death. You were thinking of death. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, or, or, or I guess it it was death, but it was more like being swallowed up by... Up by um, it was like a, I had a visual of tarry black quicksand. Mm. And that that's what I was being dragged towards. And that... I it would wanted to you know it was pulling me by my ankles and yeah. it was going to drown me and I'd disappear into like nothingness. Wow! And um, so it was not it was death, but it was more. I was alive, but I was dead to the world. Yeah. I was gone, and so it felt like that, like like whatever the the separation that I had. It was all about separating. So right, if I had to separate from my mom, that's what. It felt like I where I was going. Did you feel that way every time you went to school and stuff? That separation? No, I felt. I mean, I did, but to a very much, like a much less lesser degree. I mm-hmm. felt. I did in the beginning um, of school, like first day, always, yeah. um, and for like the first week or two, and then it got easier and easier and easier. But if we had to go on a class trip, if we had to go on an overnight, forget it. That mm-hmm. was that was killer. So, um, but I always had I always had dread. It was always there. There was maybe a week a month when I was free of it, hmm. and that was because there was nothing coming up immediately that I had to leave my mom for. Um, if she had to leave, it happened. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So it, it felt like. Dread is um, pressing against you, mm. and you can feel the pins of tr- the like pins and needles of dread. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt as a child. It's horrifying. 
Oh, yeah. It was, it was the worst. I mean, it was truly the worst. And when I was writing the book, part of what was so painful for me writing the book mm -hmm. was I had to relive my childhood panic in order to write about it. Right. And I, as a grown-up adult, was afraid that if I dropped into one of those panic attacks as a child, into my childhood panic attacks, mm -hmm. that I would, it would re-trigger it and that they would start happening again. That was and, the fear. Yeah. Did that happen? No. But the, it, but they were so overwhelmed. They were, they were scarier to me than panic attacks are now because I know what they are now. Sure. And I didn't then. Yeah. Um, I mean, just reading it, like I, I had to put it down a number of times because it was, it was hard to read. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. I mean, it's overwhelming. It's like the way you describe the panic, the way you describe just the feeling of dread. And like, I felt like my heart was breaking and I, I, it was hard to read at times. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that, um, this is a, uh, like a really tamed version. Yeah. Um, I kept on saying to my editor, it, this it's not reflective enough of what it was really like. Mm. It's, I got to put more in. She was like, please, please, no more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was like, I'm on page two yeah. and I'm already anxious. Uh -huh. And I was like, man, really? Just from that? And she was like, uh, yes. So I had to um, take out certain things so that I didn't overwhelm the reader. But uh, yeah. um, to me, it felt like I was doing a disservice to my kid self because it wasn't... It wasn't, wasn't the whole picture. It wasn't the whole picture. Yeah. Um, it was just part of the picture. But um, but I guess, you know, when, you're, when you have to translate it into a book, you have to... <sighs> You yeah. Think of the reader. <laughs> <laughs> God damn readers. God damn readers. I mean, do you feel about, do you feel like you want to get more of it out? Like the more heavy duty stuff in some capacity? No. No. I feel like I, I feel like I did get it out. Yeah. Um, and I feel like going, I'm, you know, I go around and I talk to schools a lot and I feel like that is real. That's really healing for me. Absolutely. Talking to kids yeah. and being like, listen, I'm telling you everything I wish I had known. And I'm telling you um, what your parents are doing wrong and how to talk to them about this. And I will, I'm, you know, requesting to talk to your parents having a separate assembly. And, you know, I just, I, that's really healing. That's got to be pretty emotional too. Was it? it? I mean, so let me project for a moment. Well, please. Like, I'm in your position. I'm looking at these kids. I'm seeing myself in them like, oh, like w the the capacity for dread or like, what if they, you know, stumble upon this panic, this anxiety? What if, you know, right. what if they're experiencing this? Like, how do I ensure that they don't experience the same? Well, so that part, that part is overwhelming, but that happens at the very end mm. when I... 99.9% .9 of the kids who come up to, to me afterwards are girls. Mm. And that doesn't surprise me. 90% of them are weeping mm. and begging me to help them. And How old are these kids? Um, 
from five to seniors. Wow. Um, well, I was in Canada and I had a, a she, well, she was young. She was like six or seven. And um, her teacher brought her up to me afterwards and, and um, she had been abandoned by her mom. Her mom was a drug addict and she was convinced that she was the reason that her mom left. Mm, and yeah. um, so I talked with her after and that, you know, things like that are, are heartbreaking. They're really difficult. And I take on too much in a way that I, I are you a pretty empathetic person? To, it, it's it's unhealthy, I think, mm. how I, I, how empathetic I am. I we could take it too far. Fine. Yeah. I yeah. I, yeah. I almost did. I was like, I am coming home with you. <laughs> I am gonna. I like. I, I wanted to, like. I'll adopt you. Touch. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. Literally gone there. I yeah. I thought like I will take. How many of you are there? <laughs> My I have a very small apartment, but we can make it work. We'll make it work. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it can be Miss Hannigan. I'll be your Miss Hannigan. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Wasn't she awful? <laughs> she was awful, yeah. Yeah. She so gave them cold mush. I think she did more than that. She did. She was awful. Let's not go there. Yeah, you I weren't be you, you're, you're just a beautiful cadaver. I am a beautiful cadaver. <laughs> um, but I yeah, I really I really feel for these kids and I really it breaks my heart and I don't know I'm still learning how to deal with walking away from them. Hmm. And when I was in Canada, I remember leaving one school. I took you know, five kids needed attention, and so yeah. I was talking to them. And I was like, "What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? What's your?" So I left. After I left, I my host, and I was like, "Okay, um, Sierra, seventh grade; Brittany, fourth grade; uh, uh, Stevie, ninth grade." And all these kids, they need someone. So how do I, how do we, we have to call the counselor. They didn't mm. like the counselor. They don't want to talk to the counselor. They don't mm. like any teachers. They don't want to talk to the teachers. Oh, wow. We have to find them an adult to talk to. Yeah. And the host that I was, that was showing me around was like, you can't do this. You can't take this on. Right. And I was like, but I can't walk away. I can't. Knowing that they don't have anyone to go to. Right. Yeah. So. It's just hard. That's it is. Hard. I, That's I would really struggle hard. with that too. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you were, so one the part, you know, the part that's like so heartbreaking for me is anyone experiencing suffering and not having, not knowing what to do with it, mm -hmm. not knowing what it is, uh, not having the language, not having the emotional intelligence. Yeah. What did did you feel like? things were wrong like at what and at what point were you able to like try to voice it in some way i mean obviously you didn't find the language until later but right. like as a child like how did that sort of voicing of pain come out to your mom and and yeah. your family well in the one since i was you know very very young um i'd say well no starting from like two or three I don't remember this, but apparently I, I acted out like in school and mm. um, before I had to go to my dad's or when I came home, mm -hmm. came back from my dad's, I was I was doing things that were calling attention to the fact that I was too young to be going, leaving my mom. Right. So I know that happened. Um, but then when I was older, maybe four or five, the birds, it's like we're doing um, we're nice. on Oprah, uh, Soul 
sessions or whatever her thing is. Soul Sunday? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, Super Soul Sunday. Super Soul Sunday. Super Bowl Soul Sundays. <laughs> Super Bowl Soul Sundays. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I listened to one uh, the other day, actually, and it was. I was like, are there birds in my house? <laughs> um, but um, when I was older, I just, I four or five or six, I would say, I don't, please don't make me go. I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would get there and I'd call home crying hysterically and say, you have to come get me. I can't do it. I can't mm-hmm. do it. So that was, that was how I verbalized it. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think that there was, I don't think, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't think I ever said, no, I must've said I'm scared. Mm-hmm. I know I must have said I'm scared, but I don't think anyone ever said like of what. Or, right. Um, there was just the response was always there's there's nothing to be there's afraid nothing of. to be scared of. You're yeah. in your dad's house. I'm like exactly right, right. You know, like that's the fear, mm. my friend. Um, so tea break. Tea break. Um, so yeah, I think that I. I, I knew there was something wrong with me and or at least there was something going on with me that wasn't happening to anyone else around me. Now, how were you able to discern that? Because all the kids around me were carefree and happy and I wasn't. And I was just filled with dread and I couldn't do the things that everyone else could do. I couldn't sleep over at a friend's house. Right. I couldn't have anyone sleep at my house. Because that was, I, I was worried they would distract me from keeping track of my mom. Mm-hmm. And I had to make sure my mom was alive. That was sort of my main job. Yeah, keep her alive. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had a big job as a child. It's a big job. Yeah. Um, I didn't get paid, which is really kind of a bummer. But this is obviously like, that's you putting all of this on yourself. Or are you saying from your mom there maybe was some inappropriate sort of boundaries oh yeah there totally were okay inappropriate boundaries and um and there was there were there was a lot of you know inappropriate things that happened but i also think that you know my my mom didn't know how um the things she she was doing might be fostering Mm. more of the same Mm -hmm. from me so, you know, she would, I, I, you know, I think as a parent, there's something about being needed that is, feels good. Absolutely. You know, are you a parent? No. Um, I have a dog and two horses. You're a parent. I'm a Why parent. Why would you say no if I asked you? That's, that's true. You just I, I, I just lied right to your face. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, so, horses, that's so cool. We'll discuss after. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that there's something um, sort of kind of, I don't know. I don't know the word for it, but I think that she liked being needed by me. Sure. Um, and would do things that made it worse and not do things that made it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I would... She knew that I was worried about her, that something would happen to her if I wasn't around. And she knew that. She you yeah. voiced that worry I to her. I voiced that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, that's right. I would always say, like, what if something happens to you? What if you die? You mm. might die. What if this? What if that? It was all what ifs. 
And she would say to you in response, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Okay. And I would say, but what if it happens? And she'd say, it's not going to happen. And Mm. this is what I tell parents when I go around to schools. I say, please don't do that. Please tell your kid what's going to happen because you're actually holding them hostage to reality. Hmm. So how, how I see that, how, how could your mother have, uh, instead of saying it's not going to happen, what should she say specifically? I think uh, the best thing she could have done for me is to say something along the lines of, I see, or I hear that you're really worried something's going to happen to me. It's highly unlikely Mm-hmm. But because you're so worried about it, and I see it would make you calmer to know what will happen, let's come up with a plan together. Hmm. And, you know, let's talk about it. Who who would you like to live with? What would you, if something happens? Yeah. Which is very unlikely. But, you know. But at least she's seen. Yes. And, and, and putting a name. Uh, you're speaking the same language. Right. Yeah. Because when you have anxiety, what you're afraid of is not knowing yeah you're afraid of uncertainty you're afraid of the future which is uncertain so that's why anxious kids need a plan Mm -hmm. they need um and that's why they worry about what will happen and saying to being a parent saying to a kid here's what will happen doesn't mean it's going to happen i think that's a fear of parents is that saying well here's what would happen is telling the kid you're right to be worried. Right. But that's not what you're that's not what you're telegraphing. Hmm. You know, you're telegraphing to the kid, I I'm hearing you and I don't want you to worry. So let's make a plan. Yeah. That makes sense. And then they'll know. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I that's really interesting. Um what do you think that so growing up in this way and feeling I mean, the, the, one of the, the main sort of like common things that like kept going as I was reading Little Panic is just, and we talk a lot about it on the show, is the isolation of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that part of like mental illness and, and disorders and, and any sort of like feeling like you're all alone is so like, it just is the most heartbreaking to me. Mm-hmm. How like... How long did that last? How long did the feeling of like, these components of me are part of me and they're being overlooked. They're not being seen. I mean, till last year, I I don't know. I mean, like really, um, there are still times I feel that way. Yeah. Um, You know, my parents haven't changed the way that they respond to me even after reading the book. So Hmm. I've had to make my own changes in order to, you know, to handle that and deal with that. Um, but, you know, there, I have pockets of time where I feel really isolated. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if it actually ever stops. Hmm. I think it peters out and then some residue is left, hmm. you know, and it pops up and that's so, hard for me to accept. Okay. As an answer. Okay. But also just as a reality. Because I feel like what you're talking about is creating 
modes of emotional learning mm-hmm. and language mm-hmm. to connect with each other, mm-hmm. whether it be adults or children. Right. And I feel like in the adult you know, and child case, there is a lot of learning to be doing on the parent side, right? On the adult side. Right. Why isn't that being done? I feel like there's a lot more learning to be done, and then we don't have these situations. Well, I 100% agree. I mean, with that's you. why you're talking to these parents and right. kids, of course. But, like, I don't want you to feel isolated. I don't want to feel isolated. Yeah, I don't want that either. How do we feel less isolated? By doing exactly what you're doing. Like, you're doing really important work. This is how you feel less isolated. You go around and you, you, this is how you change the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk to people one person at a time. Yeah. And, um, you, I think that's the only way to do it is to be really open about your own suffering and, you know, make talking about it, um, commonplace because, I don't understand when it became or how it became something that we're ashamed of. We're human beings. This is what this we is are. This the is who we human are. Condition. condition. Yeah. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. It really doesn't. It's illogical. So the shame is, you know, from people who are so out of touch. Um, they're never going to change. Yeah. There or, will always be those. Yeah. But there'll be less and less of those. Yeah. I think. Um, I think it's getting better. Oh, it's definitely getting better. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one day we will be long dead. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're dead already. I'm dead already. I like to mention death as as often as possible. <laughs> this apparently. is clear. Yeah. Um, you are a New Yorker. That's true. Yeah. Um, but I think there was one interview that commented on how much I talked about death do you think about death a lot all the time like in fear or is just as this sort of thing that pops up in fear and as this thing that pops up okay um there are times when i'm like okay um let's just let's just think about it and not be afraid let's just Mm -hmm. well what do i think is going to happen what do i think it'll be like and the reason that i know why i think about death all the time okay and it's because I have separation anxiety. Right. And so my um, my fears about dying are, I mean, they make no sense because I don't believe in heaven and I don't believe that we remain who we are and mm-hmm. that we, you know, have a consciousness. It's just dead done? Well, I don't know if it's, no, it's not dead done because your atoms, atoms don't die. Okay. So we're recycled. Yeah. But okay. I'm never, I'm not me. I'm not going to be me. I'm going to be Amanda Stern anymore. Yeah. You'll be something else. Right. Yeah. And I'll have no memory. But in my anxious, you know, thinking, my worry is that I'm going to miss everyone. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Which completely. That's the ultimate separation. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's my. Hmm. That's the big fear. That's why I'm so afraid of death. It's because my my separation anxiety is so profound. And it's even having worked on it my whole life. Like when yeah. you go 25 years without, you know, knowing what's wrong with you, it, it, it 
it forms you. Like, yeah. that's my core identity. And it's not just my core identity. It's my core, like my core cells. Yeah. They keep recycling into separation anxiety cells. But I mean, do you think that will be your core for the remainder of your, your time here? I hope not. In LA. Oh, yes. <laughs> On Earth. <laughs> that, that was funny. That was actually legitimately. <laughs> um, sometimes things are so funny you can't laugh. Yeah. That was one of them. Um, I really, really hope not. Yeah. Um, I work so hard on it, but, um, how do you work on it? I mean, obviously you write about it. You, you speak about it. Are you in therapy? Are you doing other, <laughs> I know I just have to ask. I mean, I, I was literally born with a therapist. <laughs> I was assigned one, uh -huh. you know, the, on, upon conception. <laughs> um, yes, I'm in therapy. Um, what was the question? How am I going to get over this? <laughs> well, I just asked, oh, like, how do I face uh, it? yeah, f f facing the reality that, like, this will potentially be a part of you for right. the remainder. I yeah. think it's, it's like exposure therapy mm. in a way. The more you do it, the better you get at separating. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I am much, much better. There were times. Um, and I never, I would not have admitted what I'm about to admit like 10 years ago. Okay. But there were times, um, I couldn't have gone to Canada, for instance. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't have done that, um, alone. Um, cause you'd be leaving your friends behind, your family, you know, et cetera. Yeah. It was leaving New York and I don't know, I had this fear that, Every time I left New York when I was in my 20s and even into my 30s, I would have panic attacks. And that stopped around I, – I did something when I was 31 or 32, um, like 45 years ago when I was 31 or 32. I, um, I left I, – I was dating someone who was cast in the Cirque du Soleil's um, – European tour. Oh, wow. Of a show called Salt and Banco. And he asked me to go with him. And I was like, are you out of your mind? Like, I'm sorry, leave New York, go to Europe and live there. Um, and I decided 9-11 uh, had just happened. Mm -hmm. And I decided I was going to you know, I had been doing things that had scared me for a while. Yeah. Um, like what kinds of things? Um, well, well, I had terrible stage fright. Um, so I would go on stage. At the happy ending no, reading? You know? Yes, but before that. that. Okay. I was a professional comic in my 20s. And um, I, uh, I had a show with Mark Maron, actually. Wow. Um, and... Uh, it was a comedy show. It was live on stage. And sorry. Don't be sorry. Mm. Well, I am. Good. Well, um, take it. <laughs> so I um I used to like throw up before I would go on stage. I couldn't have anyone talk to me mm. or look at me. Mm -hmm. And so I would isolate myself. And then <clears throat> I would go on stage and I would be fine wow. once I was on. But. I didn't want. I didn't want to be afraid of things like that. 
most people vomiting before sage would be like, nah, that's not for me. Yeah, I know. Um, Do you have a pretty strong will? Yes, I have a very strong will. Yeah. Um, and probably a strong will to create things. Yes. And, sorry, I'm moving it away because I'm feeling burpy. No, no worries. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I really, I think my paradox is that I'm uh, a person with a panic disorder who is also a performer. Mm. And <clears throat> that's difficult because... I want to do things that my panic doesn't want to let me do. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do the things that I want to do is to face the fear. So I've been doing that since I was 25. Mm -hmm. And it started with the stage stuff. Um, and you did some acting as well, right? I did. I threw up before that too. <laughs> um, in high school, I was a playwright and, um, I wrote a play that was produced off Broadway, and I I was one of the actors in it. Yeah, and um, I was in the bathroom throwing up before that. Um, oh god, that was awful! And um, throwing up is the worst. It really is so unpleasant. Mm. Yeah, it's really bad. I hate it. So um, I want to shift real quick because one sure. of the things that like struck me about uh, your story is I need a cough drop. Is that okay? Of course. Um, is you talk a lot about relationships in it. There's a lot of yeah. relationships happening, you know, when you're a, a kid and as an adult. How has that been for you since, I mean, obviously it hasn't been that long since the book comes out, but like how are relationships going for you? What can you tell me about like, because here's where I'm getting at, um, or maybe I'll preface it with this. Relationships are hard, yeah. right? Like so hard. Um, but what makes them a little better is what we're talking about is this openness, this vulnerability, this willing to like see people where they are, right. meet them where they are, accept them. Um, what have you learned in your sort of, uh, relationships and, and how has that been as you are today living in the world? Um, I have learned that, um, that there are not a lot of men in New York who are feel humans. Yeah. And it's tough. I would you ever leave New York? I would. Yeah. I would. I mean I I don't know where I would go. I really like this house that I'm in right now. It's, it's beautiful house. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know, it's not mine, but <laughs> I I would take this house we could i mean 2v1 we could take them down yeah yeah see that the was dog a, already loves me, us that was a sports reference really 2v1 i was like what's that what's that oh that is yeah i guess that is but then i i played soccer for like 25 me too. years oh not for that long i got like a soccer scholarship in college and all that yeah i played for a long was time was it a scam like felicity <laughs> no it's, it wasn't sure? a scam pretty um, sure uh, i'm pretty sure yeah um all right so I can't talk and have this. Um, you had a cough drop for that one I know, episode too. No, God, I'm. It's ridiculous. It's not. It's adorable. It isn't. It is. Thank you. Yeah. Um, see, some people think sickness is adorable, mom. Um, <laughs> so, 
relationships. Um, yeah, I, I'm really, the men in New York are not really for me. Um, at least the ones that I've met. Um, it's funny, a lot of the men who I go on dates with, you know, who I meet on like, you know, okay, Cupid or whatever. Sure. Show up and, and I'm, I, they're not straight. Hmm. It's really interesting. Hmm. Either they're not straight or they're, they have this affect that is not sexy to me. Got it. And um, there's, uh, I don't know what that is. I think it might be a sort of pretension, like a, trying to be pretentious, hmm. but that's it's gone wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's strange, but there. I mean, I've and I'm not alone in this. I've interesting. Other women have said the same things. I, I was on a date with someone recently in a, a restaurant that I go to all the time, not for dinner. You never go on a date. Never eat dinner on a date. Okay. That's a pro tip, listeners. Yeah. Just go one drink. Drink, okay. One drink and then make it short and sweet and leave. So one drink and I know the people at the restaurant, at the restaurant bar, and he went to the bathroom and the waitress who I know came over to me and she goes, why is your date gay? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I don't know. But Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. So that happens. But um. Another thing that happened recently was another date I went on. Um, the guy had shown up and he had read my book, which I found really awkward. Okay. Why? Um, because I hadn't told him I wrote one. Oh, okay. And, but he knew your name. Well, he knew my first name. Okay. Um, Interesting. And he had done a little research. And you know, that's fine if you do that. Just don't tell me. Okay. You know? So I was on a first date, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's a little much. So, okay. um, I don't know. I You know, I really haven't. Um, I've not. I've gone on a lot of dates in the yeah. past couple of years. But I have not had. I've not had like a long-term relationship in a, in a long time since, weirdly enough, Javier. Javier, yeah. yeah. Which is not real, really his name. But um I figured. But Javier is still in my life. Okay. Um, so we on and off see each other. But All right. um All right. but yeah. What does it take to um in your mind, what does it take to create that sort of meaningful connection with another human? Well, for me, the most important thing is that um, I'm not judged for my anxiety um, and that the person I'm with doesn't misinterpret my anxiety for negativity or complaining. Um, That's done a lot. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> yeah. astonishing. Yeah. Um, so that's really important. Um, I need to be with someone who is authentic who is willing and whose main interest and goal in life is to evolve and grow and to have their partner evolve and grow and to push each other towards the better, yeah. wider, bigger, larger selves that yeah. they can be. That's the most important thing to me and sexiness. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, if we're not growing, we're, just stagnant. We're, yeah. we're dying, really. Yeah. And we're already dying, so you might as it's well true. grow. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I'm just not really interested in anything 
um, false. I don't, I'm not interested in, in people who are resistant to looking at themselves, who don't believe in therapy or who scoff at like, you know, um, uh, reading a book that might help them or introduce them to ways Have of some insights, growing you know, new yeah. perspective. Yeah. It boggles my mind that humans like that exist. Yeah, don't move to New York. <laughs> I wasn't planning on it. Yeah. I did live in New York for two years after college. How did that go for in you? In 2004 and 2000, between 2004 and 2006. Yeah. It was fine. Yeah. I went without any job and I just wanted like a new sort of adventure. And yeah. Got a job selling insurance for oh, a couple sounds, months. It was terrible. So I quit my job and then just... I had a couple thousand bucks in savings. So I just kind of romped around the city and went on adventures and wrote a lot. And That sounds nice. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. yeah. And then you, are you from here? Yeah. yeah. I was born, I was just born in um, the central coast of California, San Luis Obispo area. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where my mom lives. You know how I know San Luis, whatever. San Luis Obispo? Yeah. yeah. You, you say it for me. You know how I know it? Um, because I want, I really wanted a women's March t-shirt and I, um, ordered one, um, on the internet, on the internets Mm -hmm. and all of the internets Mm -hmm. I ordered one Mm -hmm. and, um, I wanted the New York one and they sent me, um, the women's March San Luis Obispo t-shirt. That's (laughs) funny. What is this? (laughs) And it was for a child. Oh, wow. So I was like, okay. I'm flattered. Do you think I'm two to five years old? <laughs> um, Are you? <laughs> well, no. But uh, <laughs> I um, I mean, I just, I weighed myself uh, because anytime I see a scale, I get on it because why not? Sure. And um, I'm 0.0 pounds and I was flattered by that. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So um, I was, you know, I flattered by random <laughs> Odd things. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's how I know of San Luis Obispo. It's a beautiful city. Yeah? It's it's right on the coast. It's right off the 101. Uh, it's very agriculture, a lot of wine. Mm. Uh, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. that's nice. My mom has like a few hundred acres of just untouched land. It's nice. Wow. Yeah. That's really nice. It's great. Maybe I'll move there. <laughs> um, I don't know how, why did we get on that? Oh, New York, I think we got that. Yeah. Yeah, New York. And we were talking about relationships. Yeah, you know, um, so the thing about this show is that, like, I I was raised um, around a very violent man. Oh. And um, I learned to basically just shut down. Yeah. So that's, like, my go-to, like, shut down, shut mm-hmm. down emotionally, right? And I've had to learn to, like, break free of that. Yeah. Um, but it's so, like, the things that we learn in childhood are so strong. Because it's just, like, that's when we're figuring out the world. Right. And it's, it's a, but it, 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 it really does take so much work and in inward looking and therapy and these conversations to, to really have insight. And you really need to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I almost died because, I mean, literally almost died because I, I, that was like my mechanism to survival. To shut down. To shut down. Yeah. Oh, man. And I didn't like, and 
in that, I didn't, like, I wasn't developing the emotional tools to know what was happening, you know? Is your father still alive? He is. Are you... No. Yeah. No. That's good. Yeah, like, I, it was a period... uh, (laughs) I had given him many chances, like, Mm -hmm. in my late teens, early 20s, and he just kind of continued to just break my heart, and I was like, nope. So, the last maybe... 10 years, we really haven't had mm-hmm. any interaction or conversations or relationship. Yeah. Do you have siblings? Mm-hmm. Do they have relationships with <laughs> This is like the ongoing sort of um, thing that I've had to come to terms with is, yes, I have two younger brothers, an older sister. Um, one of my younger brothers, uh, who was a guest on the show, uh, has schizophrenia. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they all do have relationships with him. Um, I think... Not the closest, but mm-hmm. they see him. Uh, I've had to learn to, I'm wondering if you can relate to this. I've had to learn to accept, um, to use my friend uh, Katie, who I saw earlier today, yeah. her words, to give them the dignity of their own experience. Yeah. To recognize yes. that even though we were raised in a similar environment, um, I was impacted in a way that maybe they weren't, right. right? And that's, I think that's that's hard to come to terms with. Yeah. Because um, you're like, you know, at a certain point, you're like, why can't they see my trauma? Right. <laughs> like, why can't they yeah. see that? Well, ca- is it true that they don't see that? I think they recognize it, but I don't think that there certainly has been some unrecognition of my right. experience, you know? Right. Are you are you able to have empathy for yourself? <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that like well, the sort of my, one of my core underpinnings is feeling like I don't deserve love. Right. And I think that I'm still working on it in therapy, but I think that is a component of having narcissistic parents mm-hmm. parents who you know less so my mom but certainly my father it was about his vision how i served his vision right, right. that's very identity stripping right mm-hmm. you know and so um whenever i now like as a nearly 38 year old Whenever I'm experiencing something that could be perceived as a joyful experience mm-hmm. where I'm happy, mm-hmm. I my sort of inner dialogue was like, people are, are seeing you experience joy, you don't deserve joy, shut down. Right. And it, it's only like after that experience where I was like, oh shit, I did that. Right. Like my, my, my wife Jessica has to like call it out. She's like, you did this thing. I was like, oh, really? Yeah. It's crazy. It's not crazy. It's just, it's hardwired into you. It is, yeah. Crazy is not the right word and, just, and the wrong word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's practice. It's practice. It's, and it's scary practice. Yeah. Um, because if you feel joy, if you let yourself feel joy, there's something attached to that, I think, for you. That like, you'll get in trouble for that. Or something bad will happen. I'm expressing my uh, <laughs> my identity, right? right. I'm taking my identity and it's going to be in the face of my father doesn't matter Uh or whatever right you know yeah yeah that's hard the the moment that i um there was a there was some 
joyful moments in my later teens, like with my father, where I was able to, and I think I've been able to do this ever since, to be as antagonistic as possible. Uh-huh. <laughs> be as, as combative and uh, anti-authoritarian as possible. Right. Where he had, because he's very like hoity-toity, he's very, like he's a successful businessman now. Hmm. Probably has a million dollars. I don't know. He's wow. a wealthy man. Okay. And at one point, he's always had this, like, I'm better than everyone. Okay. And I felt that deeply, and I was always so uncomfortable with it. And there was a point in, I was like 13 or whatever, and I, I had jobs, like, you know, early, like 12, 11, you know, since yeah. 11, wow. essentially. He said, why don't you go, like, in the most, like, vile, sort of angry, sort of aggressive way, why don't you go work at McDonald's? Uh-huh. And I said, oh, yeah, maybe I will. I didn't, but uh-huh. it felt so good yeah. seeing that to his face. <laughs> you went to Wendy's instead. Yeah, I went to Wendy's yeah. instead. Yeah. 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 Anyways, we're Man. making this about me. That's okay. Um, let's talk about uh, anxiety in children. Okay. Um, what... If a parent's listening, I know I have parents listening um, who have maybe anxious children. Mm-hmm. First of all, how do you how how do they perceive that? What are they seeing in their kids that could maybe speak to them? And say, oh, maybe my child is a little right anxious. I can I can talk about that, but that's harder for me. To identify, sure, because I've never been on the other side of my own panic. Okay, but um, I did just actually write a blog post, sort of about this. I've started to blog about anxiety now, which is good, bizarre, but um, but I'm kind of loving it. Why um, is it bizarre? It seems I don't know. Perfect. It just, I I don't know why it seems bizarre to me, but it I, I guess it feels like. Are you being diminishing of yourself? No, I. I don't know. I guess I feel sort of embarrassed that, like, who you wrote am a book. I? I know, but like, you wrote a book. You I, published a book. I get it, but like, I'm not like the anxiety authority, so that I could. You, you're having imposter syndrome. I get it. Uh, yeah, I feel that way all the time. Like, who am I? Yeah. I'm not. I don't. I don't have a doctorate. Yeah, that's... but still, we have these pertinent, important life right. experiences. Oh, right. Okay. I got a blog. Um, so I guess what I said on the blog, and I'll say here, is that um, that uh, if if your child is acting out, having tantrums, um, or you know trying, or you're putting your kid to bed, and five minutes later they come out and they say they can't sleep, they're not doing these things to annoy you. They're not trying to be difficult, right? Something is going on with them. They're Usually tr- kids aren't trying to be difficult, right. right? But parents, more often than not, somehow interpret all of these actions as their child trying to get attention or trying to be difficult. And that is not what's going on. Children are not, you know, uh, they're not, if they want attention, they'll, they'll find a way to get it. Yeah. And this is not the way they're going to go about it. What, why do you think that parents interpret it that way? I think because they're tired 
and they want to watch TV and they want to do what their their own thing and because the kids are annoying them. Sure. So I think that they confuse feeling annoyed or feeling like I, I don't have like I don't want to spend the time dealing with this. They're making it about them. Right. Yeah. Um but kids don't have the language to communicate with their parents about what's going on. So it's up to the parents to learn to speak the kid's language. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you need to learn how your kid is expressing the feelings that he can't articulate. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's just, it's a, it's a good idea for parents to read books about parenting. Yeah. And about um kids who have negative thinking, kids who are kids who have negative thinking and kids who are really self-critical are kids who are either depressed or have anxiety. Yeah. And those are two really big tells. Another big tell is um skin picking, nail biting, any sort of self-grooming habit mm-hmm. is anxiety or OCD or, you know. Did you used to do that? Yeah. Well, what I, I still bite my fingers, but. Um, yeah. I would dig my nails into my skin until I bled. Mm. That's what I would Ouch. do. <laughs> um, so that's like a self-violence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, because you were raised to your punishment was sure. violence. Yeah. Um, so that's how you then punish yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I bit my fingernails, but I, I would tear things up all the time. Hmm. Um, I still do it. And I, uh, any napkin I see shred it up, any straw wrapper, shred it up. I just tearing up paper, tearing up anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did a lot of that, but I was also just very self-critical of, I was very self-critical. I was really, um, really insecure Mm. and just so uh, disgusted with myself and thought I wasn't worth anything or worthy of this. I thought I was really dumb. Um, Like that type of thing is a huge tell. And if if parents who are listening have kids who are really self-critical, they are uh, in, they're hurting. They're hurting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, parents need to just, just buy a book, you know, they're great. There's, um, Tamara Chansky is an amazing author. She writes books about negative thinking kids. She has a book called freeing your child from anxiety, which I love. Um, I read parenting books and I don't have kids. Um, You have a kid. Come on. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You called me out on the same thing. I know, but she's, she's like. She has no issues. Yeah. <laughs> She's perfect. That's um, true. That's I have true. no, I have no traumatized ch- kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have, uh, so, um, what did I say? Did I say she was, it's Tamar Chansky. I was conflating the filmmaker Tamara Jenkins. Oh, okay. So it's Tamar, Tamar Chansky. Chansky. Not, yeah, got it. Um, so there's Tamar Chansky, then there's Don Hubner, who has books called like Outsmarting Worry and... How to, she has a lot of anxiety books. Okay. Um, but those are good places to start. Okay, cool. Um, so parents, do your goddamn homework. Come on. 
I mean, it's so, it's like, I mean, I'm sure those books can give you the tools, but the, the chasm between the, the pain of your, of your kid and that kid's lack of ability to process that pain or, or vocalize it and right. explain that pain to the parents is huge. Yeah. But really the core, I mean, the core efforts should be on the parents to really try to yeah. bridge that gap. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I don't think it's up to the child at all. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's entirely, uh, the parent has to teach the kid the world, how to understand not just the world outside themselves, but the world inside their child. And the only way to do that is to learn your child. Mm. So, you know, it's a lot of parents um, look at their kid and they just assume their kid is like they were, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, 100%. And the worst thing that I think a lot of parents do is they say, I am not, I am parenting in opposition to how I was parented. Sure. But parenting is not about how you were parented. Parenting is about the kid you have. People need to raise the child they have and not the child they want. Yeah. And that's, that's, well a, that's a big thing that, that people do that really frustrates me. Yeah. It really is like I, um, I'm not a parent of a human child, uh, but uh, it is a, like hearing you talk about it, it is such a great foundational training and just connecting with humans. Yeah. And like, how do we engage and, and properly speak to and understand others? Yeah. As a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Hmm. Um, we can start wrapping up. But I do want to, you're part of an organization called Bring Change to Mind. Yes, thank you for mentioning it. Absolutely. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, they're amazing. Um, so Your best buds, Glenn my, Close. So my best friend, Glenn Close, um, <laughs> and um, I, my other best friend, my other best friend, Oprah, has nothing to do with it. But um, So Glenn Close and her sister, Jessie Close, um, started an organization called Bring Change to Mind. And Jesse has um, is bipolar, and her son, Kaylin Pick, has schizoaffective disorder. And so they started a foundation or an organization to um, <clears throat> eradicate the stigma of mental illness by talking about it perfect in schools and to each other and so they have um they have psas but they have um a really interesting peer-to-peer -peer, um school group where oh amazing yeah where they have um a, a school can apply to be part of it and they get a packet and 500 dollars to start their peer group and they just pick a teacher that they like mm -hmm. and to oversee it and run it and then it's for kids to talk about mental illness openly that's amazing yeah and um kids are really into it we're starting um a field office in new york and we're going to bring it to schools in new york they're based in san francisco okay um and it's just an amazing organization i really love i'm an advisor and i love working with them i do some blog posts for them too but they're gonna are they they've sent me to one school they're gonna send me around to a couple of other places but um 
yeah, they're awesome. I think everyone should know about them. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah it, it just warms my heart to, to see these types of organizations in the world Yeah, doing that kind of work. Uh, amazing. Yeah, they're great. I love them. And how did you, be, how did you become to be a, an advisor? So I, um, I, I'm a little bit ballsy. And I decided... Did you vomit before? No, because okay. I was in the privacy of my own home. Okay. Um, so I, I got a little ballsy with my book. And I, I thought, you know, I want to, I really want... The, the publishing industry is not um, aligned with the mental illness community. Hmm. And I really wanted this book to breach people outside of <clears throat> the traditional... Hold on, I'm going to cough. Literary world. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Coming back in a sec. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, and so I <clears throat> started reaching out to places that interested me. And I just sent a blind an email, like through their portal, through their contact us, and told them about my book and who I was. And they asked for a copy, sent it to them. They read it. They said, can we have a conversation on the phone? I said, holy shit. Yes. So we did. And they were like, we love your book. And this is really interesting. We'd like to try a couple of things out. And it just sort of grew from there. Um, I sent my book to Tamar Chansky, who I really, really respect. She read it. She wrote me. We're doing an event together. Amazing. Yeah. I Same with Don Hubner. I'm just doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of what you have to do when you write a book and yeah. you want to get it into people's hands, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm just reaching out directly to the therapeutic community and, and saying, do you want this? That's awesome. It's funny because a lot of the people I've done that to have written me back and said, I don't understand. Do you want a blurb? Do you want, <laughs> you know, what do you, I'm like, I, I don't want, I'm not asking you for anything. Yeah. I just want to know, do you want this or not? And they're like, oh, I've never gotten an email like this before. <laughs> it's really funny. That's interesting. So I highly recommend it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, how has the book done? Well, what's your, um, done in what sense? Copies sold. Uh, oh. Yeah. That, that type of stuff. Um, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty well. Yeah. Great. It's, um, uh, it's, I don't know what the number is now, but it's um, it's getting up there. When your your the paperback is out soon, May fourteenth. Yeah. yeah, nice. Um, yeah, I I know that people are happy with the amount of books sold, so that makes me happy. And I purchased two, so so then great. So I'm I up to be... six. <laughs> yeah, and, and the publishers are really happy with that number with six. Good, yeah, good. They've never seen anything like it. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow, like, look at you. This has moved again. A marvel. A marvel. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, um, let's let's wrap up. We always wrap up the show talking about empathy heroes. Oh, okay. I thought maybe we were going to sing. We can sing. No, you want to sing? No, don't make me sing. No. Let's sing. What's no, your favorite song? I, no, I can't sing. I can't sing either. Really? But I yeah. also like have a cough a little bit. What's my favorite song? That's an interesting question. Um, What's your... Uh, do you listen to music when you're anxious? No. I... Well, No. I'm too anxious to remember. I do listen to music um, when I need to cry. Okay. Um, I curate my tears. So what are you listening to? Like Elliot Smith, the no. Smiths? Oh, really, a lot of, it's only women. 
essentially. Um, but that, those are Fiona Apple. That's a good one. But no, I have um, I have like um, a playlist, okay. like a, a crying playlist. Nice. And, um, the one song I can remember off the top of my head is um, Sinead O'Connor has a song called "This Is to Mother You," mm. and it is a heartbreaker. Oof. What an amazing singer she was. She is. Dead? No, she. I don't think she's <laughs> you dead. You just killed her. <laughs> what is happening here? I'm sorry. It's just all this death talk I know, is sorry. really That's informed me. me. That's on me. Yeah. Um, but there is this. Um, I've been, there's this two little singers, sisters that I've loved since they were little. Their names are Lennon and Maisie. Hmm. And um, Lennon has a song called Just Like Everybody Else. I think that's what it's called. Okay. That makes me cry. Oh. And so I listen to that a lot. Oh, I gotta check that out. Yeah, it's great. Nice. Um, we'll play it in the car when you drive me to Gelson's. Okay, sounds good. And I'll sob. <laughs> um, but all right, so Empathy Heroes. Yeah, so this is the part of the show where we uh, just mentioned someone in our lives that we know personally, even it could be a character from a book. Okay. Someone who's just uh, a great empathy type person. I'll go first to give you a moment okay, to think you. about it. Um, lately, I've been just reading quotes from authors I like, mm-hmm. and this is kind of a longer quote, but I really love it. Okay. It's from Catherine Dunn from Geek Love. Oh, yeah. Uh, she says, quote, it is, I suppose, the common grief of children at having to protect their parents from reality. It is bitter for the young to see what awful innocence adults grow into, that terrible vulnerability that must be sheltered from the rodent mire of childhood. Can we blame the child for resenting the fantasy of largeness, big soft arms and deep voices in the dark saying, quote, tell Papa, tell Mama, and we'll make it right. The child screaming the refuge senses how feeble a shelter the twig hut of grown-up awareness is. They claim strength, these parents, and complete sanctuary. The weeping earth itself knows how desperate is the child's need for exactly that sanctuary. How deep and sticky is the darkness of childhood. How rigid the blades of infant evil, which is unadulterated, unrestrained by the convenient cushions of age and its civilizing anesthesia. Uh, and that's, that's a quote from Catherine Dunn, uh, from the book Geek Love. Um, I just thought it was, uh, beautifully said and very much in line with what we're talking about today. Uh, have you read any Catherine Dunn? I haven't, no. She's great. Uh, you should check her out. She I also wrote... Cir- the Circus Book. The Circus Book, yeah. Oh, is that um, Geek Love? Uh, no, oh. there, she wrote a book about boxing and then there's, I thought, I thought there was a book about circus something. Anyways, she's great. How about you? Who's your empathy hero? Well, let me think. Um, you know, I, I I have mentioned her many times during this interview, but um, I'm going to name, can I name two? Absolutely. So, I don't know them. I mean, I've emailed with one. Um, but I'm going to name two authors who write about anxiety and I don't know if they suffer from it. Hmm. I'm actually kind of certain that they don't. And the way that they empathize with the anxious plight is remarkable and Hmm. astonishing. I've never read anything like their, their, I've never read anything like this, that they're so, they're, they helped me put my finger on so much that I couldn't ever name or articulate. So, Tamar Chansky um, is one of my two empathy heroes. <clears throat> the other one is Robert Leahy, 
who wrote The Worry Cure. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think that they're they're sort of, they're my anxiety heroes. Mm-hmm. And um, so now they are also my empathy heroes. Awesome. Yeah. Lovely. Well, listeners, I'll make sure to uh, link their books in the show notes. Uh, where can people connect with you, Amanda? Oh, amandastern.com. Um, I have a contact information thing there um, or a little box. Um, and I have events. I also have an anxiety resources page that um, I add to. Um, not as often as I should, but I do add to it. Excellent. I have things for kids. I have things for adults. Nice. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Cool. And um, you might be one of my empathy heroes. <laughs> it's true. Oh, well, that's thoughtful. And thank you. Well, but you do this amazing thing. So, you know, we need people like you to be doing this. Thank You're you. blushing. I know it's hard for you. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But you know what? Take it. I will. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and driving to LA. Of course. And to you listeners, I'm here. You're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy.